Hello and welcome to Seafood Matters Podcast, the voice of the UK seafood industry. I'm your host, Jim Cowie, and in this episode, I am talking with Andrew Mallison. Andrew is a marine scientist. We will be chatting about current issues facing the UK fishing industry, marine habitat and sea creatures. Thanks for the invitation to come and talk to you today. Um, looking forward to a great discussion. A little chat earlier. You're a, you're a fellow seafood lover, as I am, so I'm sure there'll be lots to talk about. Um, I've been in the seafood industry all my life. Um, I started off wanting to do marine biology and thought that was a little bit too academic, so I ended up doing a fishery science degree in Plymouth in the UK. Uh, after graduating... Rather than staying on to do something further in education, I had a chance of traveling to Australia to work for a big seafood company out there. And I've been in the seafood industry ever since different countries around the world. Uh, I now live in the USA. Uh, I progressed through my career doing all sorts of things, technical, commercial, uh, to CEO and board level. And I sort of semi-retired from a CEO position uh, a couple of years ago to start my own consultancy, fishthink.com. So that's basically where I am today. Uh, I think one very noticeable omission to that is, I think maybe I want to ask you to tell our listeners a little bit about what's the catch. <laughs> okay. The, the snappily named title of my self-published book, uh, available on Amazon. Uh, yeah, what's the catch? I, I, I had collected over many years little snippets of information as I learned them. I had the good fortune to spend uh, 13 years, I think it was, at Marks & Spencer, the, the last few of them being head of their procurement for all the seafood that they sourced from around the world. And it was a great job. Uh, try and find the best of every type of commercial species. So I met some amazing suppliers, uh, both fishermen and fish farmers, uh, people who are really committed and dedicated to the best seafood um, that they knew how to, to catch or harvest or farm. And over those years, sitting on airplanes and, you know, when you have those down times waiting for travel, I'd, I'd write down some notes about what it is that made the best cod or made the best flatfish or the best shrimp, whatever, you know, because you don't know how good it can be until you try something that really blows your socks off. And uh, I remember sitting in a restaurant in Hertzels in Denmark, swearing that this fish on a plate in front of me was not place. It could not be place. It, it just tasted so good. It was more like a turbot. And uh, uh, the chef actually came out and said, well, you know, thank you very much for the compliment. It was bought fresh this morning from the auction. If you'd like to come and look in the fridge in the kitchen, you'll see 10 more of them, uh, which I did. And there they were. Nice orange spotted little beasties, uh, amazing quality fish. And so I thought partly for my own, you know, uh, memoirs, partly for my own uh, satisfaction, partly to tell my family what I did in all those days and weeks that I was away traveling, uh, I would write some of it down. And when I had the time, which was a year or two ago, I pulled together some of them. I added a little bit to it to try and make it into a book. 
Uh, it's now in its second edition. And uh, it, from my perspective anyway, talks about what I think is the, the best of each of those familiar popular species. Happy to debate that with you, Jim. I know you've got some different opinions to mine in some areas. But from my point of view, what I have experienced so far to be the best and what makes it the best. And then also maybe to take a bit of time talking about some of the bigger issues in the industry like sustainability and uh, the politics of fishing. So um, that's what the book's all about. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, talk about it. Yeah. Andrew, if I was to say one thing, you mentioned there my take on it. If you don't mind me, I'll give you my take on it. Please do. I would say to every one of our listeners, go out and buy it. <laughs> Thank you. That's very kind. Seriously, what's the catch is the name of the book. Go out and buy it. There's only one book, other book, Andrew, that I would say is in the class of your one and it's a good friend of mine many years ago a guy Ian McAndrew absolute top of his game brilliant chef and it's very much from a chef point of view and it's it's recipes so it's a cookbook and he it's called a feast of fish and I still to this day would say as far as a cookbook is concerned that is the best I've come across. Feast of Fish, and from a seafood point of view, it's an amazing book. And I, I put your one in that category. And trying to look beyond, and into, let's say through the pages, trying to look in your mind, the thing that really throws me, it does not read like a book from a fishery scientist. I feel that you're very descriptive, spot on, but very much in a basis that you don't go, you know, you just give it what it is, say what it is, and you move on. You know, it's not going into the science of it and complicated and people get lost in the in the midst of it i think it's really fantastic and it's really if somebody wants to know about fish seasons and things it's an absolute must i think it's fantastic and it goes it's it's very thorough although it's not going into uh, you know things like uh, you know Megram sole, which is a fish I use a lot, it ticks all the sustainable boxes. But although it's a sole, it's a flat fish, it's a member of the turbid family. And, you, and I thought, good on you. I wondered if that was going to come, and it did. <laughs> MTB, Megram Turbot and Brill. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, Brill, I feel, is very much, uh, and you know, it's. Uh, it's an amazing fish. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's, that's very kind, Jim. Thank you. And I know you run a great restaurant, so that's that's praise indeed. Um, and I I didn't want to – I'm not qualified. I'm not a chef. Uh, and I take my hat off to people who cook for a living professionally 
and prepare amazing meals for their customers to enjoy. Uh, but what I tried to do, and having had the, the good fortune to work with a couple of chef, chefs like uh, Tom Akins and Mitch Tonks, I know they always have this hunger for information about what it is, the, the ingredient. Obviously, great food only comes from great ingredients. And I think there are lots of great cookbooks out there, but there seem to me anyway to be very few about the ingredient, the fish itself. How do you choose great fish? What makes it great? And so that's what partly drove me to think, well, I'll, I'll make a book out of this. I'll maybe share that knowledge. And uh, people who are interested in seafood, maybe they're amateur chefs, maybe they're professional chefs, uh, and want to understand some of the questions they maybe should be asking of their supplier, some of the seasonality uh, aspects, some of the differences between farmed and wild. This maybe would be helpful to them. But uh, thank you for the for the kind words. And I hope people who do have a passion for seafood um, in the way that many people have a love of wine and they want to read the back of the bottle about how it was grown, uh, the wine was produced, um, will get something from the book along the same lines, that background knowledge, the backstory of what made it great. Absolutely. No, I think it's... Uh, it's uh, I'm not all the way through it yet, and uh, but I'm greatly impressed. And okay, it's not a it's not a chef. You're not a chef, as you say, and it's not got a sort of background chef sort of background. But you certainly you certainly don't leave any question of doubt as to. The, what the capabilities of the fish of the the fish and the dish to make with it i think it's fantastic thank you i mean the, the, the curious thing is when you go to some seafood processing plants and it might be in iceland or alaska or other side of the world it, it's just a material sometimes to those plants um and i, I would remember going to a factory and saying do, do you actually sample do you taste this fish and they say, well, no, we don't need to really. You know, we, we know it's fresh. We know when it was caught. We fillet it. We make sure the bones are out. We look at the portion control and the weight size and so on. Um, but no, we, we don't need to eat it. Uh, and there's always been this bit of a disconnect about uh, when does the fish become food? And uh, something I always try to push is that if that fish is in some way substandard because it's post-spawning or... Maybe it's been contaminated by a bit of diesel. Who, who knows? You better be finding that out now rather than sending it in to your customer and having it returned. And understand yourself. You know, you as the primary processor should be the expert in that raw material. And uh, as with the fishermen. Uh, so it's a... Uh, it's, it's seeing the fish as food, and I know we've come a long way in auctions to standing on boxes of fish and smoking over them and uh, at the auction... Fortunately, it's a lot more hygienic these days, but uh, there's still a little bit of consciousness to be brought in as to when that fish becomes food. I mean, it always is food. As soon as it comes comes into your net or your hook, it's it's food for somebody's table. I couldn't agree with you more. Even from the chef's point of view, one of the things I feel the colleges should even the colleges should do a bit more is encourage to me cooking oh it doesn't matter who you, how good a chef you are cooking is all about tasting 
and any dish a chef is putting out, and I'm the same in my kitchen, I encourage people to eat our food, you know, our, our staff, because they, they need to know, they, they need to know what it tastes like. Just gives you an inner confidence, I feel. But one of the things that I would ask you a wee bit more on, Andrew, which is an absolutely relative and important point to the fish and the quality, the eating of it, is when you brushed on the point of the processor, maybe it's at the point of the season and spawning. Could you elaborate a bit, let our listeners know just exactly, because it's very much a, a seasonal product and it's in their seasons, in season and out of season. Sure, sure. Well, the um, fish have a, 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 a cycle. I mean, let's talk about wild was to start off with obviously with with farming you can manipulate that cycle somewhat but the the natural cycle of a fish uh once it reaches it, it's from adolescence it's growing to a point you you have catch regulations and so on about minimum sizes but let's say it's a it's a harvestable fish now it's going to continue growing until it reaches maturity um and at that point it'll enter a, a cycle of starting to spawn um, in the Northern Hemisphere, it's going to be that sort of um, January, February time, because then the, the larvae uh, have the spring, the warming water, the better availability of food and the best chance of, of survival and growth. So different fish are affected in different ways by that spawning event uh, at the beginning of the year. Some are badly affected. They like they take a huge amount of energy, and flatfish, particularly um, place specifically, it just turns to like a watery jelly around February March time, uh, or when it's spawning, I should say, because spawning is triggered by water temperatures. So spawning will start, let's say, further in the south, uh, such uh, in the UK, for example, in the English Channel. And then that spawning will start to occur further up into the North Sea and the North Atlantic. So you you can little dodge a little bit the spawning seasons by knowing that, okay, spawning started in the south of the UK, so we'll buy our fish in Peterhead or a, a, a northern port where they haven't started spawning yet because the temperatures of the water are still a little lower. Getting a bit technical now, but that's that's what triggers it. And the good fish buyers will know looking at the fish, whether they're approaching the size of the row, uh, if they're about to spawn, and we'll be seeing that. Because not only does, from the consumer point of view, the eating quality suffer, but the yield suffers. So you don't get so much of a big fat fillet off a fish that's just post-spawning, because it's used up a lot of its energy in producing uh, sperm or eggs uh, for, uh, for spawning. So it then recovers. Um, there'll be a recovery period into the summer and the quality of the fish may be better during the summer than, uh, you know, earlier in the year. Let's say some fish are affected more than others and there is a, there is a regional aspect to this as well. So you really have to know what you're buying as a, as a, as a restaurant owner, where to be, which merchants to be working with, having a geographic spread to try and minimize the impact on your supply. Yeah, absolutely. It's 
It's so true from every every point along the way. Timing, the timing, and I've spoken to quite a lot of people around the coastline about this, and there's very little difference actually between people I've spoken to in Devon, Cornwall, and fishing a channel. We're we're only talking about within the whole British Isles, maybe a two two maybe three months difference in the cycle. And we always, as a, as as we're reaching this stage of maybe April, when we're hoping it'll start to they'll start to fatten up, eh, they've already spawned and lost all their condition and their weight, and we're looking at them picking up again, eh, fattening up. We always think the further north you go, the better, because up by Shetland. Northwest Shetland into the Faroes. It's a much, much later spawning time, and obviously, from what you say there, that's that's dictated by water water temperature. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so that you've got this annual cycle of spawning, recovery, fattening up, preparation again. Then for the next spawning cycle. You've also got a big variation in in the fatty fish, the mackerels, herrings, and so on. A big variation in oil levels, and uh, that will vary uh, during the year as, as oil builds up, and you know the fat of mackerel can double from fifteen percent to thirty percent um, during the year. So there, there is a variability, and uh, part of it that's the fun of it, you know, to try and think, well, maybe that's not quite the right time to buy this particular fish. I'll buy something else instead. And I know you have an interest in talking about alternative species and maybe that creates some windows and incentive for trying something a bit different because your your favourite fish may may not be the best time of year for it. That's exactly what I always say to people uh, at demonstrations and things like that. Don't just stick with one species. Uh, there's a fish, another way I put it, a fish for every dish and a dish for every season. All the fish are not in the same spawning cycle. Ling are much later than haddock, for example. And hake are later. Sole is different. Lemon sole are different from megram sole. Yeah, I, and I think that that's an amazing... Uh quality in a, in a great great restaurant for the seafood lover who wants to go and learn something to say well what what have you got what's your seasonal special right this week or you know th- this month because i'd love to try something different and um be guided by the expertise of the of the restaurant because they they know the variability during the year and they've picked from the, the best of the market on on that morning maybe um and having those surprise choices because you know, I, I, obviously I, I love cod and haddock, but it, you, if you if that's all you ever ate, uh, you'd be missing out on a lot of other beautiful tasting fish. One of the things I was mostly taken by the yourself is the fact that although it's not what you would expect scientists to be that way minded but you are really strong on flavor and taste no taste and i think well and obviously in an eating experience that's what it's all about 
Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe I wasn't a very good scientist. <laughs> Maybe uh, I, I went into sort of that sort of science and technical area. But once I had uh, graduated, I realized that it, I wasn't really cut out for standing on a cold fish dock measuring sizes of fish and checking maturity levels or doing statistical analysis of biomass. Um, it didn't really thrill me. What, what I loved was seeing the real deal, seeing it being caught, seeing it being processed and getting to somebody's table. And I, I have to thank Mark Spencer for training me and many of their other people who worked there in sending us, if you're involved in, in procurement, you would be asked to go and spend some time with great chefs. And uh, I, I spent some time with Anton Moserman at the Dorchester being taught how to cook properly, cook fish. And that's what it's all about. It's, it's, you mustn't lose sight of it. And uh, for those people who can't get to restaurants, if you can get restaurant quality fish from a retailer and you have a bit of confidence, it's not hard to cook good fish. It's quick. Um, and maybe that is the only tricky bit too. It's easy to overcook. But if you're a little bit confident, seafood is not difficult to cook and uh, highly nutritious. It's great food. Um, we hopefully will see increase in consumption over time because I think with climate change and I don't you, you've, I'm sure you've come across the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals mapping out the future of uh, the future of the oceans, the future of uh, employment, uh, climate change, lots of impacts that we have on our world. Seafood has so many advantages over other types of protein that you might look at compared to red meat or even poultry, using less fresh water, using less land, uh, being high in protein, good fats, uh, low in carbohydrate. Nutritionally, it's very good food, quality food. And I think from a climate point of view, I hope we'll see more people trending towards seafood as, a, as an environmentally responsible choice, not only for the overfishing side of it, but just as good for the planet. I think also maybe the fact that it's actually got a lower carbon footprint than was first realized or thought. Yeah, there's a great scientist, uh, Dr. Ray Hilborn at the University of Washington in Seattle, and he's done some fantastic work on comparing the climate impacts and environmental impacts of seafood compared to other proteins. And it's it's really surprising and impressive how good a food seafood is, um, how much better for the planet it is if you can consume it. And it's, it's also better for you. You know, you haven't got all of these highly saturated fats present that you might have in, in red meat, for example. So, uh, you know, there's no such thing as bad food, it's bad diets. So I wouldn't criticize anybody for enjoying a good juicy steak now and again, but I certainly think we could be eating more seafood than it should be. You know, the government's been recommending that for years, eat two portions a week, one of which should be oily. We're, we're nowhere near that, certainly in the UK, certainly in the US, uh, probably most developed world countries. We're not eating as much seafood as we should. That's 100% correct as far as I'm concerned. I definitely think that. One of the things, going on from what you said, one of the things I did on my in my menu on the in the Captain's Galley in the restaurant 
was I put a, a page at the front welcoming people and say, I don't know, I was getting, I was getting the stage where uh, people had their pre preconceived ideas. They had their favorite seafood that they always got when they were on holiday or something like that, this idea. And uh, I kind of got the feeling that people were walking up this ramp into the restaurant and with this idea what they were going to have. And if it wasn't in season, I wasn't going to have it on the menu. So they were going to be disappointed, even although they would have got a lovely choice of really fresh, good quality fish. They were disappointed because we hadn't got the dish that they were expecting. So I just put a wee paragraph in saying that explaining that fish have eggs, though they hatch eggs and the spawning cycle. And before that happens, we want to leave them to let them contribute to future stocks, recover and then and leave and so we'll enjoy them on another day and by doing by doing that you are contributing to the you know you're you're playing a part in contributing to the future stocks the health of the of the fish stocks and so many people just appreciate the fact that they realize by reading that small words that they you know it's simple and makes sense uh, but the reason i did it it was almost like saying whoa slow down <laughs> if it's not in season i'm not gonna have it <laughs> yeah because uh, as you said they'll be disappointed they'll probably blame you for it um so yeah i don't know why we're so conservative about the fish that we eat you know the, the top five species haven't changed much for decades. There's, there's been a couple of exceptions. Um, monkfish, you probably remember, used to be sold as fake scampi uh, or lobster bait. Uh, now, obviously, it's a premium fish. Um, tuna used to just be in a can, uh, but now you can get it fresh. And what an amazing you know, eating quality that is, particularly raw uh, as sushi and sashimi. But um, it hasn't really changed that much. We've still got our traditional favorites uh, and we, we could be more adventurous. And uh, I, I've seen fishermen, how, how it breaks their heart. They, I mean, they go out and risk their lives to catch this fish for us. Um, we talk about farming separately, but uh, from the wild capture side, and the technology of catching fish is not that selective. You know, you're dragging a big sock. It's like Somebody told me once the analogy would be from a helicopter dragging a net through a field of cows. Yeah, you're going to catch some cows, but you'll catch a whole lot of other beasties as well. And I know it breaks their heart to have to discard perfectly good quality fish, either because they're not allowed to land it because of quota or because there's no market for it. And uh, I'm sure everybody would be helped by a broader selection of, uh, of seafood in the restaurants and then once people get used to eating in a restaurant by somebody who knows how to cook it present it and explain it to them maybe they'll have the confidence to buy it from a fishmonger somewhere and try it at home yeah yeah uh, and uh, yeah 
totally, totally with you on that on that one. And uh, but it, it just it just a cycle, the seasonal the seasonal cycle. But how do we get other? How do we break this? Uh, I what I class it as uh, we've got the. Uh, what would you call it? The uh, oh. blinkers. Blinkers. Blink. Sorry, sorry. I oh. uh, absolutely blinkers, and yeah. we're not seeing anything other than Corden Haddock. Corden Place in England, Haddock and Soul in Scotland, and nothing else matters. We've some one one woman said to me. She came into the restaurant. Looked at the menu. She says, "Thank goodness I can come to a, somewhere in Scotland, and there's something other than haddock and soul." <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, more customers like that. But uh, yeah. I, I, honestly, I, I think it's this: the, the it takes a brave person to buy something in a retailer uh, that they haven't tried before. It's not cheap. Fish is not cheap option. I, I was looking at a, a counter here in the US. And uh, sea bass, strangely enough, from Turkey. Turkey, it was whole round. I had to gut it and scale it myself. And it was, let's say, in rough equivalent, say six pounds a pound. Uh, I could have bought chicken for about a pound a pound. Same chicken portions, skin on bone, bone in thighs, for example. Maybe one pound fifty a pound. Uh, so fish is not cheap. So you have to have some confidence in what you're going to do with it. So really, I think the onus, not the onus, but the opportunity is with the, the restaurants to say to uh, customers to try something else. Um, it's a uh, it's a partly about labeling. It's partly about the name of the fish. Sometimes that can be a bit off-putting. Um but you could have something in a, a, a medley, you know, a mixed seafood dish where you can bring something else into it um, that people might try mixed in with other things. And, oh, that, that whatever it was tasted quite good, actually. I wouldn't have ordered a plate of it up front, but now I've tried it mixed with something else. Maybe I'll try that next time. But we, we have some great, we have some great seafood uh, to use. We have, uh, amazing farmers and fishermen producing the best fish in the world. And then you've got great restaurateurs, restaurants like yours, choosing the best week by week to put in front of their customers. So the, 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 the missing link, if you like, is a little bit of education, a little bit of persuasion, and also trying to get customers a bit more likely to be adventurous to try something different. Because you can put good fish in front of people all day long, but you can't make them eat it unless they they have a mind to. And uh, I'm sure all retailers will have had their experience of finding an amazing quality seafood. You know, my particular bet noir was uh, Pacific halibut. I thought it was an amazing fish, much uh, about a third the price of Atlantic halibut. Still good, white, flaky, firm meat, delicious. But unless you just passed it off as halibut, which of course is a bit of a risk because there's also Greenland stroke black halibut, which is nowhere near as good as eating quality as Atlantic white halibut, uh, you um, you risked 
people just say, oh, Pacific Albert, is that the same? Well, not quite, but it's very similar. No, no, I don't think so. We'll, we'll stick to the Atlantic one. And it's, it's getting that education, making it worth their while to try it, more sampling, more opportunities to try without risk. And I think that's the secret. More education for younger people, maybe, you know. Uh, so I think there's a, there's a bit of a mix, mix of choices um, and, and persistence, too. I think gradually younger people become more aware of better choices for the, for the planet. And hopefully they'll see responsible choices, good choices in seafood as a part of their need uh, and ambition to live in a more sustainable way. I th- would you would you not think would you not say that the younger gen modern generation are more that way minded and health conscious as well? I I think so. Yes, uh, I I have uh, I have two sons and two uh, a, a third stepson and a stepdaughter, uh, all of whom are uh, smart worldwide um, young people uh, plugged into their social media and I think all of them are concerned about the future of the planet. I think when you get to you know your and my time of life um, we're still concerned but it, it takes a different dimension when you're thinking well we, we're thinking what, what planet are we leaving our children to what, what are we leaving our children in terms of the, the environment um, our children are ones who are going to have to live that for the next 50, 70 years. Um, so it, I think it gives them a different focus. They are, I think, more... I, I do a lot of work for a couple of um, NGOs in sustainability. And when I look at the sort of people who work for those organizations, they're typically younger people in their 20s, you know, or up to 30. They've joined it because not because they want to earn a lot of money, they could have gone and done something corporate if they wanted to, but they have joined a non-profit, possibly a charity, working in sustainability because they want to see responsibly caught or farmed seafood promoted for the future and being made more available. And also people who want to buy it know where to find it, know how to recognize it when they see it. Yeah. I don't know if you want if you have any comments on it. Maybe I'm mistaken here, Andrew. But Australia, our our youngest son is living in Australia, Sydney, Australia, and out visiting him, I must say it's the only place I have ever seen a fish on a menu which says either like a barramundi or something like that. If it's it's the actual menu said whether it was farmed or wild, and I thought that's I, I like that. Yeah, I I I think there's still a tendency to say it's wild if it's wild, and if it's not wild, in other words, if it's farmed, you don't say anything at all. I, I bought some smoked salmon, two packs of smoked salmon yesterday, and um, one said wild smoked salmon, the other one just said smoked salmon they didn't say it was farmed i probably could have looked at it in the fine print at the back but it's not a selling message that it's farmed which which is a shame um because there's some great farm fish out there and we seem to have found ourselves in a place where farming has a bad reputation 
Um, it's a young industry. Yep, mistakes were made early on, but a lot of progress has also been made now. And you can find great farm fish where they're actually making the environment better than it was before. So they are uh, the water treatment, for example, through a shrimp farm. Maybe the water coming out of the farm is cleaner in some ways than the water going in, suspended solids, for example. So uh, there's a lot of really good fish farming in the world now, and it doesn't deserve this sort of legacy of negative press that keeps being regurgitated. Um, I think people should find good, responsible farm seafood and buy it as an incentive for more farmers to become more responsible and adopt some of the best practice that is now readily available for them if they have a mind to, to farm that way. I think you're hitting the nail right in the head as far as farmed is concerned. We have to give it, give credit. There, there is there is no responsible f farmers who are trying hard to do a good job. Uh, yeah, uh, and you don't have to look far to see them. There's some fantastic companies uh, in Scotland who really are going out of their way to work with their local communities to grow great quality fish, uh, to manage the environment in which they grow. I mean, farming is by, necess by necessity has some impact. You know, we've been plowing up fields for centuries and not worrying too much about the wildlife that's displaced or the habitat that's been disrupted. Um, you can come to the US and be on an airplane flying for hours over a single crop of whatever it is, soya, wheat, whatever, and uh, very much monocultures. Um, and rightly or wrongly, we're holding fish farming to a much higher bar because maybe it's come along later. And so we don't want to make the same mistakes. Fair enough. But fish farming certainly is, um, is contentious, but it can be done well. And if you look for things, you know, the eco labels like the Aquaculture Stewardship Council on a, on a, a pack of salmon, you know that the environment has been monitored, that the water quality has been checked, that the animals have been cared for, that the feed is made responsibly. Um, all those things that you don't have the time to go and find out for yourself, <laughs> that somebody has checked that for you and you see a badge on the pack and you think, okay, great. But uh, Scotland, I, I always used to admire the, the salmon farmers in Scotland because firstly, they have, they have a... They don't have the easiest time dealing with the regulators because there are lots of little you know, pockets of government that you have to go and get somebody's blessing if you want to go and farm some fish. But once you've overcome all those hurdles and started to grow grow fish, the, growing, the environment is fantastic. Whether it's West Coast, whether it's Orkney, whether it's Shetland, um, you have some amazing salmon being grown. And then that wonderful fish is then made into smoking or to you know, fresh fresh natural product um but yeah it's some of the best in the world well there's a glowing example of that in westry one of the north isles of orkney where there's less fishing boats there now so obviously that meant uh, less jobs but the fish farms have been a I've, there's a lot of the ex-fishermen who maybe left the fishing 
went to offshore to the oil industry or that. And a lot of them are now employed in the fish farm on the island. And that, that, that is a place where they really do make a fantastic job. It's organic. And also, they don't have any, they don't have to give any chemicals for sea lice because this, where, where they're situated, the cages, they don't need, they don't need any. Yeah, uh, and, and site selection is a huge factor in how healthy a fish are going to be and whether they're going to need medication or treatment during their life at some point. Um, I, 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 if, I'm sure I don't want to embarrass them, but a company I did some work with a little while ago, Scottish Sea Farms, uh, I'd just like to give them the credit amongst others, but they're a great example of choosing great sites where there's good water quality, uh, investing in an early vaccination of fish so the fish's immune system is protected against disease later on. And I know many of their sites, they've never had to use antibiotics because they don't have the threat from the environment. The fish aren't stressed. The fish aren't uh, vulnerable to disease. And also they've, got, they, they've been chosen because they're fit, healthy fish. They're fed well and they, they're cared for by guys who are out on those cages every day in whatever weather, looking at the behavior, making sure that the fish are, are, are well. And uh, as a result, you don't need to treat the fish. Um, so again, this is one of the things that farming gets beaten up for antibiotics. But there are many farms that have never used antibiotics because they have taken a, a healthy, proactive approach to how they want to raise their, their stock and they invest in good husbandry. Yeah. I mean, you could almost say in this country now, there's no, there's no wild because it's not available. Uh, there's, it's against the law to sell rod-caught salmon. And I think, I think that's a good idea. I think that's good because it takes somebody fishing on the river for salmon fishing it shouldn't be for how much, how many I'm going to catch and how much money I'm going to make. It should be for the love of being there and enjoying the environment and 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 your hobby, your pastime, and yeah, be allowed to take one home for the pot, as the saying as the saying goes. But not how many can I kill to, to see how much money I can make. So I think that's a good rule. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think uh, rod fishing for salmon is is a great sport. And for those that have the chance to do it, I uh, I, I wish, wish them the, the continued success, as it were. But yeah, unfortunately, it's no longer a commercial catch to be able to market it uh, as such. Um, and you... I have seen some pretty ropey examples of wild caught salmon that haven't been handled well. Um, and uh, they would have just better been returned to the water and hopefully maybe reproduced further. Um, now, the decline of wild salmon, very contentious area. You know, some people will blame it on farming, but there are declines in wild salmon on the east coast of Scotland where there's not been any salmon farming. So it's not salmon farming's fault um it's more i think about high seas mortality about uh 
maybe juvenile salmon being caught up with mackerel catches uh, on the high seas, uh, maybe food supply, maybe climate change. This is probably a lot of factors that have led to a, a decline in uh, wild fish, uh, wild salmon, I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, really, if you look at the big fisheries of the world uh, on the, the Pacific side of, the, of North America, Alaska, British Columbia, those fisheries are significantly supported by hatchery release uh, where they're raising juveniles and releasing them into the rivers. And if they weren't farming fish as a, at least a juvenile stage and letting them go, I don't know how much of that wild, I'm sure there's a percentage somewhere if I put my fishery science hat back on and went digging, I might be able to find out what, what percentage of that catch uh, is now proportion of, of it is from hatchery and actually genuinely from wild reproductive stocks. Yeah. See, when you said yourself there, you bought wild two packs yesterday. Yeah. And one of them was wild. Yeah. Is that, that wouldn't be Atlantic. Is that coho or sockeye or something like that? It wouldn't be Atlantic halibut, would it? Salmon? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, uh, the smoked salmon you bought. Smoked okay. salmon, yeah. the 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 farmed one, yes, was an Atlantic species. the The wild one would have been one of the Pacific, so it could have been coho, it could have been king, probably king because the oil level was a little higher. Yeah. Do you? I've seen the when I've been holidaying in Florida in the past when our boys were younger. We used to get Spanish mackerel. Is that a species or I don't come across that in this country? No, it's more of a catch over here. And I have to confess, I've not really got into the the wet, the wet fish or fresh fish market in the US. Um, and, but as you go further south, you get more exotic species like snappers and yellowtail. Uh, but um, in this part of the world, well, the states that I am in, New England, it's actually very similar to the sort of fish you would be familiar with uh, seeing on your your menu there. Uh, so there's, there's cod, there's haddock, there's halibut. Um, probably what we see here a little bit more is swordfish um, because there's a, a fishery off the Grand Banks here. You, you probably remember that uh, film, The Perfect Storm, and the books written around it, or actually the books came first, obviously, and then the film with George Clooney. And uh, long lining for tunas, but also for swordfish. Um, the, the tunas are coming back a little bit, the big, big bluefins, but swordfish is a fairly regular catch off the coast here. And um, you, if I go to a local retailer, nothing fancy, not a specialist fishmonger, uh, the typical offer there would be Haddock, um, salmon, maybe some cod, and then you'd have swordfish, halibut, a um, couple of whole fish occasionally, d depending on season. You might get some black bass. You might get some European sea bass. So there's, there's a reasonable selection, but swordfish is quite a staple uh, here, which maybe you're not, not seeing quite so much in, the, in Europe. We don't see swordfish at all in this country. Never, I've never known it. No, it's it's a good eating fish. You know, you cut it as a steak, yeah. and um, it's very firm and meaty. Um, 
it's it, the bigger ones if they start to accumulate a bit of mercury because they're right at the top of the food chain so that mercury is bioaccumulating up from the little fish to the medium-sized fish and then the, the big fish eats the medium-sized fish and so on but as uh, last time I looked, I think if you're eating swordfish less than 50 kilos total weight of the, of the fish, they're not going to have any sort of level of mercury that would trouble you. Uh, and with a lot of these sort of contaminants that get talked about, you have to eat an awful lot of whatever is supposed to cont contain this particular contaminant to make any impact on your health. I mean, yeah, mercury is bad for you. Dioxins and PCBs are bad for you. But the levels are extremely low, and you'd have to eat a lot of whatever it is they're being found in to cause any sort of risk to you. Yeah, I I, I thought you spoke you you wrote that bit well in the the on your book about the PSPs and you know yeah these yeah. pollutants yeah. Um, yeah, that, and that's the trouble. You know, people just want to hear the sound bite. They think, oh, it's contaminated, don't want it. But, I mean, you can find things like PCBs and dioxins in, in human breast milk. You can find these are environmental pollutants that have been with us for 50 years, maybe. And their presence is reducing because they've been banned for some time now. Uh, but the level of sensitivity of modern laboratory equipment is so good that you can detect these things down to parts per billion. Um, so to be able to say, well, it's not present, you used to be able to say, no, it's, it's not there because it was below the limit of detection. That's harder to say now because that limit of detection has dropped uh, by factors of 10 uh, or hundreds uh, with modern laboratory techniques. So, yeah, but it's just a bit of realism. You know, um, the vast majority of the benefits of eating seafood vastly outweigh the risks. And I think uh, a scientist called, uh, I was going to say Mondrian, but that's the artist, isn't it? Oh, it might come back to me. He um, calculated how many lives in theory had been lost through heart attacks. You remember there was a scare about farmed salmon, I think around 2004, about PCBs, dioxins, and the market dropped. A lot of people stopped eating farmed salmon and stopped having the benefits of the long chain omega-3s that were present in in salmon and he did some maths on the vulnerability to heart attack that probably caused across the population and the number of people that probably died of heart attack as a result of not having omega-3s compared to the actual risk of the pcbs and dioxins that have been detected at these tiny tiny levels so uh, it, it wasn't the best health decision, as it turned out, to stop eating farmed salmon back in the day. Yeah, I know that at one stage the Faroese, you know, they're they're great for eating the pilot whale, and uh, they catch it and uh, distribute it amongst their their population, and they for one while there they stopped they are they. There's a recommendation that eight people, elderly people, children, and pregnant mothers shouldn't eat it because of the mercury content. But that was very much thought that it was pollution that was the cause of that. Uh, it, there is some organic mercury pollutant, uh, 
possible, uh, but it's 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 it's, it's environmental. And as I say, it comes up through food chains. So the bigger fish are more at risk because they, it bioaccumulates. Is is one fish eats another, it takes on its its pollutants, whatever it is, mercury amongst others. But um, I, I should t- <laughs> talk about the pharaohs and pilot whales. I, I remember ha- visiting the pharaohs and uh, wonderful place, uh, very yeah. dramatic scenery and great fishing industry there. Lovely and, people. Uh, lovely people. Um, and I went there just after they'd stopped sort of or just at the time when they were stopping this prohibition. You know, they used to ban alcohol, you probably remember. Yeah. yeah. And uh, if you were a visitor there, you'd have to go and sit in a curtained off part of the restaurant if you wanted to be drinking because the, the locals couldn't couldn't have alcohol, um, which I was a little bit unfair, but that, that was their regulations at the time. But anyway... Um, I remember sitting on a plane reading this brochure. You come to the pharaohs and talk about their culture. And I opened this brochure, and there was this picture of a pilot whale slaughter in one of their bays where they drive the pilot whales into the bay, into the shallow water, and then have at them, basically, with knives and just try and kill kill the beasts. And you think, well, somebody who's visiting, not familiar, you know, might find this a little bit off-putting. Um but you, you have to respect the fact that, as you read the article, that this is an important meat supply. These are islands which don't have a lot of grazing for cattle or sheep. And so good protein is hard to come by. And so this pilot whale, they thought, were, were plentiful. And it was a local survival to get through the winter to be able to put down enough of this uh, meat for the winter from this this resource as they saw it um but yeah having your the bay turned red with the blood of pilot whales is probably not the best advertisement for tourism i've ever seen i totally agree with that i totally agree with everything you're saying because although it's maybe not the best advert advertisement for them they're the in fairness to them as well every part of the beast that's slaughtered is eaten and and uh, but also as you say it's saw them through the winters and it's a, it's not just something that was thought of in the spur of the moment let's try it it's been going on for a hun- hundreds of years and also what i thought found fascinating in the pharaohs every single house the garden there's a drying shed and never will i forget the day i was visiting a fisherman and his he insisted that it as a welcome i had to he was handing me a piece of dried puffin <laughs> that, that i had to eat and he was within two feet of me looking at eyeball to eyeball so i couldn't even screw up my face if i didn't like it so i just got a lump of dried puffin to stick in my mouth and <laughs> yeah they're, they're a little bit fishy tasting and i had a similar experience where we'd been to a fish factory and they said oh okay thank you um do you want, do you want to come on a little boat trip to see some of the islands see the puffin colonies and I, yeah great so we we jumped onto this little boat went round to the cliffs saw all the puffins skimming along the waves little little fish in their beaks going back to their nesting sites and it was beautiful, you know, a, re- a real 
experience and privilege to be able to see nature like that at, at first hand. So then they went round, okay, we're going to have dinner now. Great. So we went round to the other side of the island and uh, some guys were met us there at the quayside and they had ropes and bags. And this island was shaped like a sort of a wedge of, of cheese. You know, the cliff on one side and the slope on the other. And they went romping up the slope to what would have been the top of the cliff, hung these ropes over, shinnied down, and they started grabbing these puffins, breaking their necks and throwing them into the bags on their back. And having just seen these beautiful birds flying around and nesting, thinking, oh, how wonderful, you know, you then realize what was going to be for dinner. And uh, so we had... Uh, <laughs> That meal in the in a local like a town house, just like the civic house of the community. Uh, these birds were just plucked and roasted and laid on the plate, uh, beak and feet and all. And uh, you know, bon appetit, enjoy enjoy your dinner. And uh, that's that's been one one of the um, experiences of which I've had a few. I think of, of traveling in the world of seafood, being you know somewhere where there's a local culture and might not be what you're used to, but it's certainly an experience. Well, I don't think I would rush back for roast puffin. I, I found them a little bit fishy uh, to eat, but uh, I've had worse, put it that way. I'll tell you, the, 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 fish, the eating experience that will be forever lasting with me as far as the Faroe Islands is concerned, I don't know if you noticed in your time there or with dealing with them, they have a great tradition when they're fishing, the boats, they catch the smallest size, we call them baby codlings. You know, the, the baby codlings, they tie, they tie two together by the tail and put them over the rail of the boat. And they're just left there and they dry in their own time and it's an absolute delicacy and I've had it on board the uh, boats and Faro boats and obviously they know how to cook it and handle it properly and it really is delicious but this time it will be it can be weeks old but it's in the salt air and there'll be sea lashing up in it as well so it's uh, and I was I was dealing with the Faroe Islands so I was for must be 20 years I was taking Faroe boats in I was the first to start doing it actual fishing Faroe boats fishing the Faroe Islands not the UK fishing the Faroe Islands and coming into Scrabster to land their fish. And I was handling their sails and all that. And this guy says to me, they're always very friendly and, oh, you must, you must, you must, you must. And he gave me two of this codlings off the railing and said, you t take them home and this is how to cook them and whatnot. And I obviously wasn't going to say, no, thank you, I don't want them. So I thought this is very good, and it was obviously early in the morning, and uh, so I I took the codlins and left when I was finished landing, getting the the fish landed and 
graded and sorted and, and away in the trucks. So I went home to have a shower and my breakfast before I started the day job. And I put the two codlings in the sink and what we had a back out, out almost like an outhouse, so a washroom. And I put the codlings in the sink there. Had my shower, breakfast, whatnot, back to Scrapster. And in the middle of the morning, I got a phone call from my wife, Mary, and she says, did you do anything in the back porch today with in the washroom? I says, why? She says, well, whatever you've put there, she says, Wick is the name of the town. You know, the Wick, Wick that's where we lived at the time. She says, I don't know what it is, but I think every blue bottle in a wick is round our <laughs> washroom. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I can picture it. I, I, unfortunately, we 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 work in an industry which is not the most aromatic, um, and I, I remember as a young guy in my twenties working in a fish factory, catching the bus home, and two ladies were sitting in the seat ahead of me. Uh, and one turned to the other and started to sniff the air and said, oh, somebody's got fish for tea. And, yeah, that, that was me. That wasn't what I had in my my, my bag. It was me. <laughs> yes, I've heard that one many a time. You know, if I could just brush on the subject, go back to the wild fish, I fully believe I've not got any stats to tell me this, but... I honestly believe myself that UK, the waters around the UK, have the, the biggest multi-species fishery in the world. But it must be coming very close to that. Uh, from a, a commercial fishery, targeted fisheries, yes, I would agree. Um, if you go for biodiversity though if you go to uh, thailand or southeast asia the variety of fish they will catch is just phenomenal and many of the species are small uh, and unfortunately they're using quite fine mesh nets because they you know they, they've been overfishing for some time and uh they will they won't be targeting a particular fish they will haul a net they'll see what's in it uh, the larger fish which they can segregate out for sale as named species will go to a uh, human consumption market there'll be some sort of in the middle which are random you know bony fish or smaller size which they can't sell directly and they'll go for surimi you know this mashing up of fish to make protein uh, which forms things like crab sticks and other little snacks made of white uh, whitefish protein and then you'll have the the rest which is still protein but it's going to go for fish meal um, they'll just shovel it into into fish meal for pet food and animal feed and then there'll be the sticks and sand and stones and the rest of it that will just get hosed back overboard so um, the style of fishing is very different in the northern north atlantic northern hemisphere compared to southeast asia 
Um, but I think we do have a great diversity of species. Uh, we do have more targeted species that say, well, we're going to catch cod and there might be a bit of a bycatch of something else, but typically you're, you're, you've got much more targeting of species than you would have in other parts of the world. Yeah. I, one of the things I feel that we could take more advantage, going back to what we say about the blinkers on the cod and haddock, is if the fishermen were getting a better price for the lesser known species that we're speaking about, they that makes up their that makes up their income, and they could take pressure, less pressure on the main species. So there's a win-win for the consumer and the fisherman. There is, uh, and I've always found it to be uh, feelings of fishermen are in an in impossible situation sometimes. You know, the, the, if their price is uh, going down, they have to fish more. They have to catch more to pay the bills and uh, it drives them into filling quotas earlier and then they have to tie up their boats and then they've got all that money invested in the boat and it can't, it can't be working and earning money. It's, it's a very um, inequitable system still. It, it's improved, but it's still difficult. And you think, well, if you were an investor, would you put money into a fishing boat? Um, I don't know. Um, you might find something safer, uh, more predictable. You know, you've got the weather to deal with. You've got the, the changes of regulation and quotas to deal with. You've got biomass influences beyond the control of any fisherman, which means that next year your quota might be cut by half. Uh, it's not your fault. It's just something that's happened maybe somewhere in the ecosystem that means there was a bad year class of fish coming into the fishery. Um, and that volume has got to be cut down. So it's it's a tough way to earn a living and i take my hat off to anybody who's done that and i worked that out quite early on when i was studying fishing boats and naval architecture and gear technology that i thought i got uh i'll, I'll leave this to guys who are a lot braver than me to make a living at um but yeah it, it's hard to get that economic mix right and particularly when you've got this feature of if there's money to be made but in a particular fishery, more boats will come and try and catch that fish. And that shares the profit more ways. So those each boat then earns less as a result. Or you have to go and catch them more. And then the fishery is under pressure, and then the quotas get cut back to protect the stock, and then your boats have to go and move something else. So the government really would be better at restricting capacity so that those fishermen who are working in a particular fishery can make an honest and good living out of it afford to reinvest in their boats and their equipment and uh so yeah the, the whole economic argument we could talk for hours just about that but um we seem to have been protecting farmers on land for many years with subsidies and support and seeing them as they protect the land and they're stewards of the land and they make sure it is maintained and cared for well we should start seeing fishermen in the same way, um, stewards of the ocean, co collecting data, helping fishery scientists make the right decisions, um, and not just expecting them to 
live or die by what comes up at well not live or die god forbid wrong wrong words but uh have a living or not economic living or not depending on what comes up in the net every day yeah i mean one of the things that i hear a lot obviously from close friends and people i'm involved with is uh, when they're maybe it's a regular it's uh, in every fishing port you'll get a maybe a, a boat that it's maybe handed down from father, from grandfather he's out of the scene now father is maybe stepped back and the sons are running the boat you know they're crew they're skippers and engineers and things like that and they're keeping the boat going and uh, they're investing you know they've maybe built in a number of occasions recently there's been a lot of modernization of the scottish fleet building new boats and investing huge sums of money uh, and they uh, you know they're one of the things to say was well why are we what 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 are we why is it not in our interest to fish sustainably when our whole future investment or families and their families are so heavily involved in it yeah very true and uh, i think again fishermen of there's a, a bit of an old fashioned image in some quarters about they will just catch it before somebody else does. And I think that's just not true of the modern vessel owner who probably has a mortgage, has finance, wants to reinvest, wants to see this as a long-term business. And uh, absolutely, they want to see it as sustainable. Um, so the, 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 the value of the catch is protected. They don't want to tr- see it as a mining operation where they just like the Olympic fishery style where they'd go in as soon as the quota was filled, that's it. Everybody has to pull up nets and finish. Um, there are still fisheries like that around the world, bonkers, you know, then they can be over in a matter of a couple of weeks. But yeah, if, if you want to, to use your assets in a more financially sensible and economic way, you've got to have continuity rather than peaks and troughs of economic activity. So I, I think it's uh an industry which is trying to modernize is making a lot of improvements, um, but it's still just seen as a little bit on the periphery. Uh, it, it should be a lot more central to government strategy than it is. That's the concerning part for fishermen. And uh, in recent times, there's been quota cuts, which has really impacted heavily on them. And yet, there's no scientific evidence been taken so a quota cut with no scientific evidence to to justify it and it's just been cut which is a huge impact on them yeah uh, and I, I i i sympathize with anyone who's in that situation where it's beyond their control if a migratory stock like mackerel moving across between Scandinavia, across the top of Scotland, towards Ireland, somebody has caught a lot of that fish before it's entered 
our territorial waters or our UK territorial waters and therefore UK fishermen don't get to catch as much as they might have done because somebody's beaten them to it you know that's that's poor um, but I, unfortunately politics are often the problem with national interests competing over and above the interests of the overall fish and the uh, and the public's diet um, and seems to be almost an intractable problem which is holding wild fisheries back all over the world and uh, I, I think our best hope for wild fish is that the stocks we have are protected we continue to be able to enjoy them uh, whether they're ever going to reach the levels of abundance they were 100 years ago is very unlikely I think we're the high technology we have now is is very good at catching fish uh, but let's hope we can regulate that protect the stocks allow fishermen who are licensed to fish to earn a good living a reasonable living but i think the growth overall in the consumption of seafood is probably going to will come from aquaculture uh, rather than wild fish because politics just seems to make it, it almost impossible for us to not only conserve but to grow wild fish stocks beyond where they are today yeah uh... I find it quite fascinating talking to, you know, uh, there's a very well-known fisheries scientist in Icelandic, Jón uh, Christensen, and I've spoken to people in the Faroe Islands, and when they're when they're talking about stock assessment and and that they're very much talking about speak to fishermen, look at nature. That's what I find fascinating about you, Andrew. You're very much you 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 take nature into the equation. Uh, yeah, and we've all seen that classic conflict of scientists. Oh well, we've done this egg collection survey, or we've done this research trawl. And therefore, we calculate that the biomass is this. And therefore, because of the reproductive ability of the fish, you should only take this amount per year as a quota. And the fishermen say, well, we've never seen so many fish jumping out of the water <laughs> because the fishermen are very good at catching fish and scientists are not. So if the two of them go out trawling, the scientists are going to catch few and think, oh, not many fish in the water. The commercial fisherman is going to catch a lot of them, because he, he or she knows where to look and is good at rigging their gear to catch them. So, you know, history has been littered with scientific recommendations that have been based on faulty methodology. They've trawled in the wrong way. They've rigged their net in the wrong way. Having said that, you know, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle, you know, and really the, the ambition should be for the scientists and fishermen to work together. The fishermen collect data the scientists interpret it and analyze it, make you know, and then make proposals. Fishermen say, "Yeah, okay, that makes sense or not," because the fishermen want that advice. They they need, as you've just said earlier, they want to be here in twenty, fifty years time. So they need that understanding of the reproductive ability of stocks, the ecosystem impacts, what's happening to that fishery, uh, and they don't want to take out all of the the reproductive ability of the stock um, by accident. I mean, look at what happened on the Grand Banks with cod. They said, yeah, lots of fish, lots of fish until they weren't. And it's never come back. It's still, you know, cod, cod catches off the coast of Newfoundland are still, you know, pitiful. 
Uh, in fact, it's been displaced by shrimp and scallops. Probably the shrimp are eating all the cod eggs. That's payback time for you. As I'm not right in thinking there's a huge increase in the lobster catch as well. And lobster, yeah. They, they make more money out of shellfish now, whether it's scallop or clams or shrimp or lobster than they did out of cod. But it was just a huge, painful transition to go through and the government having to declare a moratorium on the on the cod fishery, which was at one point so abundant historically. You probably read these books, Mark Kolansky, yourself, uh, about scooping up just in a basket in a rowboat. You, go, you didn't need a net. It's a fantastic book, Cod. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. It is. Great book. You know, when you're seeing that, uh, I this young Christensen I mentioned, I was explaining to him one of the bones of contention with the British UK fishermen is that the when they're at stock assessment, they'll put the research ship out and trawl an area and they'll do all the counts on what they catch and and then they go back to the same fishing ground. They go back to the same areas every time. And the fishermen are saying, look, that's not the way fish works. Fish move. And, and we move. We're areas where we caught them in a few years ago. We don't get them there now. It's not that they're not there. They've, they've, they've migrated and, and we get them in other places. And so I... And the, and the f- research ships, the survey, they still keep going back to the same places. And I said to this guy, you know, young Christensen, what do you think of that? And he says, well, he says... With the way I would liken that, he says, it's the same if I was going to assess the stock of grouse, the bird, grouse, the wild bird. And he says, I would go at a certain time of the year to the top of a hill and fire two shots, and that with the pellets, I could go and find out. I could go and see how many birds are killed. And then, in the same time next year, I'll go to the top of the hill, the same hill, with the same gun, fire in the same direction, and see how many I kill this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, it's definitely a... A coming together is needed, um, and fishermen are quite rightly been a bit distrustful of science, and uh, maybe get, getting better collaboration would between those two bodies, I think, would benefit everybody. So. I think I think that's the important thing that the the talk, the, you know, I'm not saying the fishermen are are they are everything, and fishermen would be happy to be just included and and spoken because it's. It's there, you know, they're in that environment more than anybody else. And they understand the environment more. An interesting thing I had yesterday, Andrew, with a, a podcast with a girl doing a lot of work in the west coast of Scotland on seaweed. And one of the things she said that they're looking at now and taking further, uh, they're using seaweed and putting it, you know, like a garden, they do buddy planting where they're, they would plants that maybe would help another like a another plant grow or 
or divert the flies that would affect a plant. And they're doing that with seaweed. And they've planted, they've got seaweed growing alongside mussel beds and and the oyster beds. And the stuff, beasties and different life that's coming off the seaweed, the shellfish, the oysters are feeding on it. And it's got very positive results. I think that's fantastic. But one of the other things which I thought was really interesting was that they're doing commercial uh, tests with uh, one farm in the island of Mull in the west coast of Scotland is doing a, with sea, they're using seaweed in, in pig farms. And I just thought, you know, another bone of contention with our fishermen is the, there's big Danish vessels come over to the, I'm sure you maybe had experience of it. They come over to the east coast of the UK and mostly in the sort of northeast of England and that waters and fish for sand eels, for 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 industrial industrial scale fishing, for for their pig farms and the what the UK fishermen feel is a bone of contention that's that's food that fish that's fish food and how much better that would be if they could utilize use seaweed and 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 leave maybe that you know who's to know that would help the wild stocks yeah i mean when you when you look at um judging sustainability of any fishery you very much have to look at not just what the stock can sustain in terms of harvest every year but also what else is dependent on that stock and how whatever take commercial fishing removes extracts from that fishery uh the impact on others so krill would be another one you know the impact on cetaceans what you know whales and uh, dolphins um seabirds particularly for something like sand eels uh, as many populations of seabirds are reliant on sand eels so yeah, to, to, when you start looking at true true sustainability or outside just the fishery science of it, you really have to consider all these other ecosystem impacts as well. And I, I can see how there would be a concern about whatever the purpose, whatever the utilization of the catch is, is secondary really, but how the ecosystem is impacted by by that take. Maybe the sand eel survive, but are you taking food away from some other maybe endangered marine animal that was reliant on that. And maybe it's the only thing that particular animal eats. So reducing the availability of that particular fish that you've just caught for something else may badly impact uh, another marine animal. So, so. Jim, I, I, I need to wrap up soon. I've got a doctor's appointment in half an hour. So I, Time to move on, I'm afraid. But uh, it's been a fantastic conversation. I feel we could talk for another hour easily. I uh, quite easily we could, but I'll I'll go for second best, and I'll just carry on with your book instead. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, I, I um, I, I can you let me know how I can hear this podcast once you've edited it, where it will be published, because friends yeah. and family, I'm sure, would love to listen in on it. Yeah, and maybe who's to say in the uh, in the near future we could maybe get back together with either with somebody else alongside and and take it a stage further. 
Yeah, yeah. sure. I, I I love talking about seafood. So um, there's there's lots lots to lots to talk about. But I like I like I have to say again, repeat myself. I like the level that you've with your book. It's not it's not a scientist book. It's not a it's not it's not you know it's there's a science aspect in it. But I think it's well done. It's really really clever, and I think it's for, for, from I'm I'm seventy two. My father was a fisherman. And my uncles, cousins, they were all fishermen, were from a fishing background. And I can really relate to everything that you say. I think it's fantastic. Well done. That's very kind. I really appreciate it. So coming from you with a, a lifetime experience in the industry and running a very successful restaurant, that that's praise indeed. So thank you. And, and yeah, I, I, I did try and write it from a seafood lover's point of view. I tried to write it for people who enjoy seafood, want to know, like the equivalent of reading the back of the wine bottle, that sort of person who wants to know a little bit more about it. You might be an amateur chef or a professional chef, or you might just be interested, but I, I, I didn't want to make it too technical. I wanted to make it quite informal and readable. And if that's how it's come across, then I'm, I'm thrilled. Thank you. Well, it worked. Good. You knew it worked. <laughs> Good. Thank you so much for your time with us it's been really really interesting thank you and i'll definitely let you know where and when you can pick up the podcast that'll be great and it's it's been a pleasure talking to you jim thank you very much for inviting me thank you for listening to seafood matters podcast you can subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts you can join me on Instagram and Facebook by searching for at Seafood Matters Podcast. If you have any questions or episode suggestions, please email me at jim at seafoodmatterspodcast.com or get in touch through my website, seafoodmatterspodcast.com.